0: we come to the book of Chronicles and as I was saying at the end of the last session as we approach the book of Chronicles we must be aware that uh, a span of time has passed between the end of 2nd Kings and the the writing of Chronicles so uh, the, the, the books of Kings uh, Jew- Jewish tradition says that these books were written by the prophet Jeremiah. Now we don't know ultimately who wrote Kings but if Jeremiah wrote them, wrote the books of Kings, that means that these books were produced around the time of the fall of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. And then what you have is, is uh, 70 years roughly speaking in Babylon and then in 539, I know it's not 70 years from 586 to 539 but Nevertheless, they're in exile until 539. Cyrus issues this decree that any Jews who want to return to the land can do so. And as Cyrus issues that decree, Jews living at that time, let's say Daniel, for instance. Daniel is taken into exile in 605, and then he remains in exile, really for the rest of his life, so far as we know, and, and he's in the Babylonian court, and then he's there in Babylon on the night that the Medes and the Persians come in and slay the Babylonian king and take over the, the Babylonian kingdom. And, and uh, the text doesn't say it, but I think it's probable that maybe Daniel, in some ways, facilitated the decree that Cyrus issued. We know that this was Cyrus's policy to let to let. Uh, Exiled peoples return to their traditional homelands, uh, but but I think that probably since Daniel was one of the key rulers in Babylon, I think it probable that he might have been influential on on uh, the case of the Jews, and so Daniel and others living at that time would certainly be aware of Isaiah 44 and 45, where this king named Cyrus is prophesied who will let the people return from exile. And uh, Daniel also explicitly in Daniel 9 mentions the 70 years for Babylon that Jeremiah had prophesied and if you start from from the time when Daniel was ex- exiled in 605 and work that down to 539 when Cyrus becomes king and issues this decree, well that is just under 70 years. It's, it's, it's really close. Uh, And so, so if you're someone like Daniel, living right at the time that Cyrus issues this decree, you're aware of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and most of the 12 minor prophets, all all but the last three. The last three ministered to the the post-exilic community, the community that, that had returned from exile. That would be... Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, those three guys, they ministered to the the Jews who had returned to the land. Well, the rest of those prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, the first nine of the twelve, their basic message is we're going into exile under God's judgment because we've broken the covenant, but beyond exile, after the judgment, and in, in many ways, through the judgment, God is preparing this glorious eschatological future for us, and, and they describe this this new act of salvation that that God is going to do, and they they liken it to the Exodus from Egypt. And so, often you'll hear people talk about the second Exodus or the new Exodus. This is this is what Isaiah through. Uh, the first nine of the twelve this is what they've been talking about this new Exodus that God is going to do this new act of redemption where God is going to redeem his people they're gonna have a new Exodus Uh, at many points the prophets will describe a new covenant so Jeremiah famously has this passage in Jeremiah 31 that describes a new covenant you you have something similar in the book of Hosea when in Hosea 2 Hosea talks about the way he's going to woo the people of Israel out into the wilderness and, and essentially, he's going to speak tender to, tenderly to them and betroth the people that he's going to woo out to the wilderness, just as he brought Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, he's going to drive them into, the, into exile, then he's going to bring them out into the wilderness, speak tenderly, tenderly to them, and betroth himself to them. And And I think this is New Covenant language. So, the prophets talk about a new exodus, they talk about a new covenant, they talk about how Isaiah and others they talk about how the wilderness the the land that was that became a wilderness when when God drove the people out of the land the land of Israel that wilderness is going to bloom and at various points they'll talk about a new David who's going to reign over the people and and this gradually this picture emerges that that we might call the glorious eschatological future of Israel and as you read through say Isaiah through the 12 you, you could get the impression that when Cyrus does his work, that brings the people back to the land, and when the 70 years for Babylon are completed, all this is going to happen. New Exodus, return from exile, um, new covenant, new David, n- the land will be a new Eden, they're, they're going to have a new conquest of the land. And, and, and Yahweh's glory is going to cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. And, he, and he'll finally accomplish his purpose in Israel. You could get the impression that, it, that it's all going to happen at once. And I think that one of the things that, that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Chronicles, these books that are written after the exile, once the people have come back to the land, one of the things that these books deal with is the way that there seems to be a a partial realization of the new exodus and return from exile promises in that the people have returned from the land, while other aspects of those promises have not yet been realized. So, for instance, Isaiah 11 that talks about the nursing child playing by the hole of the cobra, or the same chapter talking about the lion laying down with the lamb, these things have not yet been realized we haven 't yet seen the curses of Genesis three rolled back and and it's, i think it's it 's helpful to think about the this the, the language of the prophets as addressing not just one exile but two and and the the two exiles that I think Isaiah through the twelve are addressing number one, the exile from eden and that's that 's when Isaiah is talking about the nursing child playing by the hole of the cobra, the, lying, the lion laying down with the lamb, the nation studying war no more, all these things. He's addressing that exile from Eden. And then they're also addressing the exile that, that was uh, brought to completion in 586 B.C. when the temple was burned down. And, and what we have in, uh, in, the, in, in the return that we read about in the Old Testament is like a return from the exile from Jerusalem. So they return to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, then they rebuild the walls, but we don't yet have the return from the exile from Eden. And and when Jesus comes in the the New Testament, the New Testament authors speak of what Jesus accomplishes as the fulfillment of the prophecies of the new exodus and return from exile that we read about in Isaiah through the 12th. It's almost as though what what uh, the New Testament authors, the four Gospels, Acts, and Paul, what they what they describe, it's like it's the return from the exile from Eden that's already begun, but is not yet fulfilled in all, or not yet realized in all its fullness, and then ultimately in the Book of Revelation, uh, the the. Um, the plagues of the seven trumpets and the plagues of the seven bowls of God's wrath, these also are presented as, as paralleling and corresponding to the plagues on Egypt at the exodus. So it's almost as though there's a, there's a final fulfillment of the exodus in the book of Revelation. And, and, and as a result of that fulfillment of the exodus, the people of God are then going to go into the new and better promised land of the new heaven and new earth. So this would be sort of the biblical theological tra- trajectory and, and in the midst of this we come to this book of, uh, of Chronicles and we have, we have two books of Chronicles, 1st and 2nd, and we'll be in 1st Chronicles the first hour and 2nd Chronicles the second today. And um, as we approach Chronicles what we see is in, in many ways a reaffirmation of the promises of God to Israel. Now, now that judgment has fallen, now that the exile has happened, it's like the, the author of Chronicles comes along and he says, okay, we're going to pick up the pieces after exile and the pieces that we're going to pick up are the promises of God. And by picking up these pieces and holding them up and restating them, it's as though the chronicler is asserting these promises still hold. And, and that needs to be asserted because there are texts in the Bible like... Psalm chapter eighty-nine, where we read of of the the fall of the house of David at the exile, and in in Psalm eighty-nine verse thirty-eight we read having, the, the psalmist to this point in the psalm has has uh, articulated all the promises that God made to David, and then in verse thirty-eight now you have cast off and rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed you have renounced the covenant with your servant you have defiled his crown in the dust and then it talks about the destruction of the city in verse 40 you have breached all his walls you have laid his strongholds in ruins and it talks about the the peoples of the nations mocking what has happened in in Jerusalem and then in verse 46 how long O Lord will you hide yourself forever so it's as though the house of David was cut off at the exile and and when they return they have a, an heir of David's line, Zerubbabel, but but we don't we don't know whatever happened to Zerubbabel. We read about him in in Ezra and we read about him in uh, Haggai and Zechariah. We and that, that's all we know of him. We we don't know anything else that happened to Zerubbabel. We don't and 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 we don't know what happened after that to the heirs to David's throne. I mean, when the New Testament opens, we're told that both Joseph and Mary are of the house and line of David, but but between say Joseph and Zerubbabel, when Matthew gives us that genealogy, there are a lot of names on Matthew's genealogy that we don't have in the Bible, and and so it's as though it's as though the house of David goes silent in in the intertestamental period, and yet before that happens in in 1st Chronicles, it's it's like there's this reaffirmation of the promises to David particularly the promises of 2 Samuel 7 which are reiterated in 1 Chronicles 17 so if we ask what is the chronicler doing I think the answer is going to be he's doing an Old Testament theology the the, the Chronicles uh, and, and, and I'm gonna refer to the author of Chronicles as the chronicler and, and, and what we have here is a book that I think rightly stands as the last book of the Old Testament, and that's where it's placed in Hebrew Bibles. And he, if you were to pick, say, a, a pick up, say, a JPS Torah translation of the Old Testament, a Tanakh, you would find that the last book of the Old Testament is Chronicles, and I think that is a an appropriate place for the book because it's as though what the author does is he goes all the way back to Adam, first Chronicles 1:1, Adam, Seth. Enosh and so forth he starts with Adam and and this is a brilliant device he summarizes the whole history of Israel from Adam down to his own day by means of this list of names and these names the these the, these are not just a this is not just a boring old list of names that's hard to read through once you get to it in your Bible reading every year this is a significant statement that says God's purposes from creation to now are being carried out in this line of people and this line of people is significant because these are the people through whom God is accomplishing His purposes. This is the line of descent in which God is at work in the world. And so this is really a brilliant way to summarize thousands of years of history in a very short span of of space a very short span of time and a and a short small space the chronicler summarizes everything from Adam to his own day by means of these nine chapters of names and so uh, this is this is a brilliant uh, strategy here and and in many ways I think the names function as as kind of um, uh, pegs in the storyline of the of the bible so that so that this is not just a list of names this is a list of name that names that is meant to recall and evoke what we read in the old testament about these names as we read through this list so it's almost like a a reminder of everything that you've read from genesis to now the whole old testament is being summarized as it were in these nine chapters of names so as we look at the list, we start with with Adam, and, and this is the first human, and and it really it states, in 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 implicitly it states that human history is the stage for the drama of the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel is working out its its uh, identity and its destiny on the stage of human history. So it starts with Adam. And then um, it goes down in verse seventeen to Shem, and then eventually uh, we get down to Abraham in verse or Abram in verse twenty-seven, verse thirty-four. Uh, we we get Abraham, Abram's line, and then in chapter two, verse one, these were the sons of Israel, whose name was cha- or who was Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, and and significantly, I think, uh, Judah comes at the head of the list there in First Chronicles two verse 3 and and we're told about Judah's sons and then and then David uh, comes in first Chronicles chapter 2 verse 15 and then in chapter 3 verse 1 these were the sons of David and so we get David's genealogy and then in chapter 4 uh, there's a return to the genealogy of Judah and um, and and the the narratives go on and and I think this is a, a very interesting statement here in 1st Chronicles chapter 4 at the end of uh, verse 22 uh, we read that the New King James renders this, now the records are ancient. Yeah, they're ancient. They go back to the beginning of the world. They're ancient. They're old. That's right. And, And I think that what this is pointing to is the reason they're keeping these ancient records is because they believe God's promises. The reason they're taking the trouble to record these names is because they believe the promise that God made when He spoke judgment on the serpent that He would raise up a seed of the woman who would crush the head of that serpent and all his seed. And, and so that seed of the woman is what we're hoping for and this list of names is evidence of our hope because we're recording the line of descent that's going to end in this seed of the woman so this is a list of names that is going somewhere it's a significant uh, uh, list I think we can also say that when we compare what we have say here in first chronicles to what we have from other um, peoples of the world it's its unique really in the world I mean what other what other record do we have in in all of the world's literature, that claims to start with the first human, and then walk down through a list of names to the time of its author. I mean, we have fictionalized versions. So, for instance, in in Virgil's *Aeneid*, there's a made-up uh, genealogy that 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 goes back to the source of humanity in the in the Greek and Roman gods. Uh, but but that's not that's not uh, a real history of names. I mean nobody, nobody believes that Aeneas really had a goddess for a mother, unless you you want to say that maybe uh, his mother was one of those demons who got involved with a human. Maybe that's where Aeneas came from and maybe that that legendary uh, story got into the Aeneid. but at any rate this is a this is a true this is the true story of the world in the Bible and it's unique in all the world's history this is not some made-up legendary account this is this is genuine history and I think it's it's arguably the case that history real history I'm not talking about legends or myths or or falsified accounts that you create for political purposes so like this one I've just been talking about Virgil's Aeneid um, there, there are scholars who who know and, and who acknowledge the fact that uh, as, as Virgil produced this genealogy, uh, the, the reason he included the people that he included was because that it would be politically advantageous to talk about the ancestors of certain uh, well-placed people in the Rome of his day. So he, you know, he's doing this for his own uh, benefit, so to speak. But what we have in, in Chronicles is a real history of real people and and I think that this is probably the origin of human of, of of history writing in all of humanity and the reason these people are recording history is because they believe this is where God is at work God has made these promises he's going to do uh, these things that he said he's going to do and we're gonna track the 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 story and we're going we're gonna keep track of the people involved in these events there's a, a Significant statement made in First Chronicles chapter five verses one and two, where we get to the sons of Reuben, and we're told now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So Joseph was like maybe tenth born. He was born later. I don't know if it was tenth. I'd have to go look. But at any rate, Joseph was born later than Reuben. But when Reuben committed this sin, um, the, the narrator is explaining that disqualified him from being firstborn and the blessing passed to the sons of Joseph you remember that episode where where uh, Jacob slash Israel was going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh the two sons of Joseph and he switched his hands and Joseph objected and said no my father this one is the firstborn and 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 Jacob said I know but the blessings gonna go on this other one um, that that's being alluded to here so that, here in First in Chronicles 5, 1, the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet, verse 2, so the blessing goes to Joseph's sons, yet, verse 2, Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So it's like the chronicler is, is looking back at that account and saying, okay, if we were going to track the firstborn, then Reuben should have received the blessing. Reuben didn't receive the blessing, uh, Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh received the blessing, but then we look at at the actual blessing, the words that were spoken over the children of Israel and this, this significant statement in Genesis 49, 8 through 12 is made about Judah's line and here the chronicler provides this interpretive comment, okay the blessing went to Joseph's sons. But the chief came from Judah in accordance with Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And, and I think that these kinds of comments are very significant for our understanding of the Old Testament. You, you might argue at the end of Genesis that though there is that statement, that significant statement in Genesis 49, 8 through 12 about Judah, nevertheless you also have a pretty significant statement in Genesis 49, um, 24 about Joseph. So, Genesis forty-nine, twenty-two. Joseph is a fruitful bow and so forth. Then look at verse 24, his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there, from Joseph or from the mighty one of Jacob? It, it's, I think it's not clear, but we're talking about the blessing of Joseph here. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, you could read that blessing and say, oh, well, the shepherd and the stone, they're going to come from Joseph. And, and I think you could, you could read this, this narrative in well, all of Genesis and you could conclude, well, maybe the blessing, maybe the, maybe the promise will be kept from Joseph. And the chronicler here is saying, well, the blessing went to Joseph, but the chief and and the chief he has in mind is David the chief came from Judah and that's significant because it tells readers of chronicles okay Joseph's important but the chief came from Judah and the promises were made to the chief from Judah David those promises were made so so it's Judah's line through which from which we're looking for the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent so this is i think significant interpretive Im- information here then in 1st Chronicles 6 we get the sons of Levi and 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 we go on and, and in 1st uh, Chronicles 6:15 we read Jehosadak went into captivity when Yahweh exiled Judah and Jerusalem by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so um, so there that's when the exile happens that's acknowledged so by the time Chronicles was written the exile has happened and we'll see also that that uh, by the time Chronicles has is written um, the exiles have returned to the land and um, and we see that explicitly for instance in first Chronicles chapter 9 where we have a genealogy of the returned exiles after that, what we have is one chapter on Saul, and then we move straight into the narratives of, of David. And, and it's often remarked, and it, it is worth pointing out, that, that uh, the chronicler, he, 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 he's telling the truth uh, about what really happened, but he's being strategic in the material that he selects to include in his narrative so for instance the chronicler says nothing about about David's sin with Bathsheba he, he doesn't include that information and uh, and 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 that's significant I think I, he's not denying it he's not saying you know David didn't sin with Bathsheba he's just choosing not to include it and, and I think that that is because in some ways The narratives of Samuel are in part explaining how Israel got on the trajectory that ended in exile. And part of what put Israel on that trajectory was David's sin with Bathsheba. Chronicles is written after the exile, so we've been through that. We know why we went into exile. We don't need to dwell on those things. Let's dwell on what the community that has returned from exile needs to believe, and that community. That, that has come back from exile, they need to trust and believe that God has made these promises and He's going to keep these promises. And so, um, as, as we proceed through these, these narratives, uh, th- there, there seems to be a theme in Chronicles that um, the Lord saves those who trust Him uh, and, and the Lord saves those who who trust him irrespective of the odds against those who trust him so um, for instance, th- there are statements like like this when um, when David is king in in first chronicles eleven uh, and, and we 're getting this list of of the mighty men here, and um, we read in First Chronicles 11:13 that this guy Eleazar was with David at Pashtamim. Now there were Philistines gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley. So the people fled from the Philistines, but they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So it, it looks as though Israel is being routed, and Eleazar and the other of the three mighty men, they stationed themselves in the middle of the field, and they... They put the Philistines to rout, so Yahweh brought about a great victory so david 's mighty men fought, and God brought about a victory god they fought God won and um, and this seems to be a major theme in in chronicles about uh, god 's people being outnumbered and nevertheless achieving victory. Um, so as we proceed through these narratives uh, that, that's that's worthy of noting and it's also worthy of noting how often it's also worth noting how often the narratives uh, observe on what on how someone does with respect to the word of the Lord so for instance look at uh, I'm just going to summarize a number of these statements quickly um, I've already uh, remarked on First Chronicles 4:22, the records are ancient, and and then you find a, a statement about the records or about the word of God uh, in First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 49, where they they offer sacrifices, and then at the end of the verse, according to all that Moses the servant of God had commanded, and then as you proceed through the narratives, you you get another statement like this. Over in First Chronicles, chapter ten, verse thirteen, it's actually the opposite of this. Saul died for his for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. David, by contrast, in First Chronicles eleven three, he was anointed king according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And then in in verse ten of First Chronicles eleven, uh, uh, as as he lists the mighty men who have uh, joined David to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel and then in chapter 13 verse 23 these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord and 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 I think that all this focus on things being done according to the word of the Lord says to the community that has returned from exile that that the chronicler is addressing we must live according to the word of the Lord that's our standard not conducting ourselves Saul didn't conduct himself according to the word of the Lord and he lost his kingdom Israel as a whole didn't conduct itself according to the word of the Lord and it was and we were driven into exile we've now come back to from exile and we need to live according to the word of the Lord Uh, this is uh, also significant in, in 1 Chronicles 15, the narrative of David bringing the ark up into Jerusalem. And here it, it's made clear uh, after Uzzah is struck dead. In 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2, David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And then in verse 13, David explains that Uzzah died because. Uh, we did not do this the first time and and Yahweh our God broke out against us because we did not consult Him about the proper order, meaning we didn't do as He had commanded. And then verse 15, the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So a major theme here in Chronicles is that if 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 you disregard the word of the Lord, you're going to get judged. But if you live according to the word of the Lord, the Lord's going to bless you. First Chronicles 16, verse 40, To offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar, of burnt offering, offering regularly morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which He commanded Israel. And let me just observe also that you have all these statements about the word uh, uh, or doing what is written in the, literally, Torah of Yahweh. And, and again, this is this is an assertion that the Torah of Moses, the first five books, excuse me, Genesis through Deuteronomy, these these books are the Torah of Yahweh given through Moses. So it's asserting the the div, divine origin of uh, the Bible. In First Chronicles seventeen, there is this uh, rehearsal of the covenant that the Lord made with David, the promises that the Lord made to David to build him a a sure house, a lasting dynasty. And once again, uh, to, to assert these promises after the exile is to reaffirm them. It is to say the exile has not nullified the promises that God made to David. And we are still looking for David's seed whom the Lord is going to put on the throne forever. So, if you you didn't believe this, if you, let's say, if you were the chronicler and you adopted a purely uh, non-messianic perspective on Israel's history, well, you wouldn't select to include this material. Because to include this material, if you've you've adopted a non-messianic perspective, worldview, a worldview that is not looking forward to an heir of David reigning on the throne and bringing righteousness and causing this glorious eschatological future for Israel to be realized, if you've adopted that kind of worldview that rejects all that, you're not going to rehearse these promises to David because that's that's not what you're expecting God to do. And so you're you're not going to trot out these promises that you don't think God's going to keep, but if you think that God's going to keep these promises, and if you think that this is what the people of God need to remember about God, then yeah, you're you're going to restate these promises. And and I think that's uh, significant to understand what's happening uh, in in the narrative of Chronicles. It's a reaffirmation of the promises to David. Um, so the story continues, and uh, there's there's a there's a fascinating statement made in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1. Um, it's it's a, it's the parallel account to 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse one. So before we read 1 Chronicles 21 one, let me read you 2 Samuel 24 1. And in that passage we read these words. 2 Samuel 24 1 again the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say go number Israel and Judah so in in 2 Samuel 24 1 the Lord is angry at Israel and so he moved David against them and had David go do this census and then the Lord judges David, and, and through this judgment, the threshing floor of Arauna is identified as the place where the temple is to be built. So, so it's in 2 Samuel 24.1, it's the Lord who incites David against Israel. First Chronicles 21.1, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. The Chronicler is not contradicting the narrative of 2 Samuel. The Chronicler is giving insight, I think, into how, excuse me, the Chronicler is giving insight into how it is that the Lord has has incited David against Israel. And the way that the Lord has incited David against Israel is by using Satan to stand up against Israel. And, and prompt David to number Israel. And I think that this is the way that the Lord works. The Lord, the Lord uses even wicked agents like Satan to accomplish His purposes. The Lord is holy, righteous, and good. He is not tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, but He's sovereign over Satan and He's in control of what Satan does. And the Lord uses these secondary agents like Satan to accomplish His purposes in the world. Well, here in First Chronicles 21.1, uh, this also results in the identification of the threshing floor of Ara'una as the place where the temple is to be built. And then the narrative uh, continues, and uh, eventually... Um, after we rehearse all this material um, we 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 get to this account at the end or near the end of, of first chronicles in first chronicles chapter twenty eight where we get an account of the way that David addressed Israel um, before his death and and this account first chronicles twenty eight has has no parallel in um, in either Second Samuel or First Kings and so this is an interesting narrative some somewhere the chronicler has gotten this information and and he tells us what his sources are at various places and and so among the uh, the sources that the chronicler explicitly identifies for his information are are the genealogies obviously that he that he lists and then he has letters from foreign rulers, he has songs of praise and lament, Um, he he names eleven different prophetic writings. So in other words, uh, the chronicler names I think eleven prophecies, and he he names or or shows at least awareness of Genesis, Numbers, Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, and Psalms. All those books are quoted by the, the chronicler. So here in in 1 Chronicles 28, somewhere he's gotten reliable information of this account, but but it doesn't come from elsewhere in the Bible. We read here in 1 Chronicles 28, Now David assembled at Jerusalem, all the leaders of Israel, the officers of the tribes and the captains of the divisions who served the king, the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and the stewards over all the substance and possessions of the king and of his sons, with the officials the valiant men and all the mighty men of valor then King David rose to his feet and said hear me my brothers and my people I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh now this I think this reference to a house of rest is significant because it's picking up uh, on both the idea of a house for the Lord not a tent and also rest for the Lord and these two things seem to point. Excuse me. Teach all morning, afternoon gets difficult to teach on through. Uh, these two things seem to point to the, the the nature of the temple as being connected at some level with the Garden of Eden, because it was in the Garden of Eden, once the Lord had built creation, that He rested there. And now David is going to build this temple. That is a reflection of the cosmos. I think that's the the symbolic significance of the temple for Israel. And if you want to read more about that, I would commend to you uh, the book by G. K. Beale entitled "The Temple and the Church's Mission," where he traces out what what the the uh, symbolism of of temples was intended to communicate in the ancient Near East, and and basically uh, temples. Were, were meant to be sort of symbolic representations of the cosmos, of the world, of the universe, and so David wants to build a house of rest, and and I think that the idea is he wants to build a, a, a redo of Eden in, in the temple. So I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and for the footstool this is the ark even for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Well, to the reader of this narrative, this is new information. This is the first time we encounter this information in the Bible. And then David goes on to talk about what the Lord had done for him. And then in verse 6, Now he said to me, It is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. So the Lord is identifying here Solomon as David's successor. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day and then David addresses Solomon in first Chronicles 28 verse 9 as for you my son Solomon know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts if you seek him he will be found by you but if you forsake him he will cast you off forever. Note note the the explicit conditionality here. Consider now 1st Chronicles 28:10, for Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. So the chronicler is is both providing an explanation for how the nation got exiled and and how it got onto the tra- trajectory of exile by means of Solomon's sin and Addressing his, his, his generation to say, let's not redo the mistakes of Solomon. Let's not hear these promises again and then commit idolatry and sexual immorality and get ourselves exiled just as Solomon did. So David charges Solomon to build the, the temple and then... Um, and then the narrative closes and and it closes looking forward to this rebuilt temple uh, and and note I think I already read in this class first Chronicles twenty nine twenty nine. now the acts of King David first and last indeed they are written in the book of Samuel the seer in the book of Nathan the prophet and in the book of Gad the seer that very well may re- refer to the books of first and second Samuel but but we're not exactly I mean we're not certain that that's the case so, in 1 in Chronicles, I think we could say that, that there are certain things emphasized. The Word of God is emphasized, the promise to David is emphasized, and, and the need to be faithful to the Word of God and rebuild the temple is emphasized. And, and I would also argue that, that the main theme of First Chronicles is the same as the main theme of the rest of the Bible, namely, God is going to be glorified in a salvation that comes through judgment and so in in part what we see is through the judgment of the exile the people of Israel have the door reopened to them to this this salvation that they hope to see realized under under David and his heirs also there, there are these warnings of the judgments that God has rendered in the past and through those warnings of judgment God means through the human author the chronicler to to bring his people safely to uh, salvation so so first chronicles I think is a is a terribly neglected book and it's unfortunate it's it's unfortunate because this is this is a fascinating narrative that that is very significant in 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 both the Bible because because what you have in in chronicles is an interpretation of everything that's gone before and it's a significant book in terms of world history because, because it, it makes these radical claims to begin with Adam and, and track this, this significant line of promise all the way down to its own day, its own post-exilic day. So that's where we'll leave the, the, the book of First Chronicles. And when we come back in the next session, we will pick this up with Second Chronicles, and we'll see the way that the Lord triumphs uh, often by few over the many.